Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to another flashback episode. After our short little bite last week, I thought I'd offer up something a little more meaty, something with a bit more length, so I won't take up much of your time. This Holmesian tale features a very familiar voice. So, without further ado, children of the night, sit back, relax, and listen with me to William Meekles. Case of the Tibetan Rug, first featured on episode 135, August 15th, 2014. I was looking forward to seeing Constance McGregor again, as she is a truly remarkable example of a modern woman, a redoubtable Scot who's brought back a great many new plant species from her solo adventures in Asia. Holmes and I had previously spent some time in her company at Kew Garden, and I had found her a delightful companion, 
So it was with some alarm that I saw tears in her eyes as she entered the 221B Baker Street apartment one afternoon in late August. She had requested and been granted a consultation with Holmes, but there had been no clue given as to the nature of her problem. I could see now that it must be something most troubling, and I immediately made myself a promise to help her, no matter what Holmes' verdict might be on the matter. The tears disturbed me, for I knew Miss McGregor to be made of strong stuff, and a woman who'd undertake solo expeditions to the Orient in search of exotic plants was not someone to be taken lightly. Anything that would bring her to the point of crying and force her to seek out Holmes' help must be a matter of some import. I showed her to a chair by the fire, although it was only just past noon I offered her brandy. She took to it like a drowning man clutching a life-belt, draining it in two swift gulps, and handing me the glass back for it to be refilled. Holmes watched all of this from the chair opposite, elbows on his thighs, his long fingers steepled in front of his lips. He kept quiet, and still did not speak as Miss McGregor lit up a long cheroot and started to suck smoke like an expert. She now had some color back in her cheeks, but her eyes showed signs of puffiness from the crying, and her eye-makeup had run to look like dark bruises underneath. It was all I could do to stop myself from sitting at her feet and taking her hand. I'm afraid the lady had me rather smitten. If Holmes noticed, he still did not speak. Miss McGregor was halfway through the cheroot and most of the way finished her second brandy before she started to talk in a soft whisper as if afraid to tell her tale out loud. It started last week, really started, I mean, although I have thought for some time that I was being watched, and it is always the same, every night just past midnight, I wake and I see a dark figure standing at the foot of my bed. I call out. I've even on occasion thrown a shoe and threatened him with a pistol, but he never speaks back. In fact, he scarcely moves. He just stands there as if mocking me. Every night. At that she started to sob again, and this time my urge to protect her grew too strong to ignore. I stepped forward and took her hand. She clung tightly to me just for an instant, then pulled herself together. I am so sorry, Dr. Watson, she said, lighting a fresh root from the stub of the last, but I do not know where else to turn. Holmes finally spoke. It may be that the police will help with a persistent intruder, he said. I shall have a word with Inspector Lestrade, and her eyes took on a hard glint that reminded me of the strength of character of the woman. No, Mr. Holmes, you don't understand. The police cannot help me in this matter. You see, he isn't really there. That brought Holmes up short. He looked at me, smiled, raised an eyebrow. You are correct. I don't quite understand, Miss McGregor. Are you saying you are being visited by some kind of phantom? The woman stared back at Holmes. If you're going to patronize me, Mr. Holmes, I shall bid you good day, 
She tried to stand, but I pushed her gently back in the chair. I'm sure Holmes meant no such thing, I said, and I shot him a look to tell him to behave himself. He did not look in the least bit chastened. Miss McGregor looked up at me. I shot him, she said, twice, with father's service pistol. It had no effect. That was two nights ago. And last night he was back again, just standing there. Please help me. Holmes looked bored. Watson will sit with you tonight, he said, taking me rather aback. I'm sure you'll be able to get to the bottom of this quickly enough. And with that, we were dismissed. Holmes went to the window, lifted his violin, and started to scrape his way through one of his interminable dirges. I knew from experience that I'd get nothing further from him for some time. I took Miss McGregor down to the scullery and made her some tea. We arranged that I would visit her that evening, and I would sit with her and watch, to attempt, as Holmes put it, to get to the bottom of the matter. I must admit I felt like an awkward youth as I stood on the doorstep of the McGregor residence in Chelsea later that evening. Although I was ostensibly working, I was also acutely aware that I was calling on a rather fetching young lady, one that I admired greatly, and of whom I was growing increasingly fond. Butterflies I had scarcely felt since adolescence tumbled in my stomach as I rang the doorbell. She answered it herself. I've sent the servants home for the night, she said, showing me into a most elegant parlour. I thought it for the best. I I'm afraid to say I stuttered, hummed, and hawed my way through that first hour, but if she noticed, she was far too gracious to acknowledge it. She made me feel almost at ease, and at first she took the lead in the conversation. We did not talk of the watcher by the bed, but of her trips to the Orient and the adventures that befell her on her journeys. We discovered common ground in Afghanistan, and I, I found that we had tramped some of the selfsame hills, although she had not had to fight her way through rebel ambushes as I had. And by the time it came round to eleven o'clock, I felt most relaxed in her company, and I liked to think she was coming to feel the same about me. We had a snifter of some rather fine single malt before she showed me upstairs to her bedchamber. It was only then that she showed some signs of the nervousness with which I had been afflicted earlier. I took it for apprehension of the possible recurrence of her watcher, but I realized as I walked into the room that there was more than a touch of embarrassment at having a stranger in her room. I quickly took a seat in an armchair in the corner furthest from her bed and assured her that I would stay awake all night if that is what it takes. She climbed into bed fully clothed and got under the covers. You may smoke if you wish, doctor, she said. It will not bother me. She snuffed out her bedside lamp and I sat there in the darkness watching over her as the night grew on. After some time her breathing changed to a more relaxed tempo, and a soft snore told me she had fallen asleep. I took her at a word and lit up a pipe. As I smoked, I mulled over her story. From what I knew now of her character, she was not a woman prone to flights of fancy, which made her tale of the nocturnal intruder all the more remarkable to my mind. 
I suspected foul play and all too human agency intent on harming this fine woman. Sitting there in the dark, it was very easy to conjure up ideas of skullduggery and conspiracy. I, I was so lost in this reverie that I almost did not spot the new moving patch of darkness that seemed to appear from nowhere at the foot of the bed. Three things happened at around the same time. Miss McGregor sat up in bed and pointed a pistol at the dark figure. I got out of the chair, heading toward the bed, unsure exactly what I intended to do, and, most surprising of all, the curtain across the main window was abruptly swept open. Someone stood there, holding a lamp. "'Get him, Watson!' Holmes' unmistakable voice shouted out. I used an old favorite rugger tackle, aiming for the dark figure's upper thigh, knowing that my momentum would carry us both to the ground. I, I, I do not know who was more surprised, me to find my tackle met only thin air, or Holmes when I tumbled in a sprawling heap at his feet a second later. Miss McGregor lit her bedside lamp. I see you planned a flanking maneuver, Mr. Holmes, she said sarcastically. Maybe now you'll start to pay a bit more attention. Holmes did not reply. He began a systematic study of the whole room. He remarked on two fresh bullet holes in the wall. He took a line of sight from the holes back to the bed. "'I suppose there is no doubt that you hit what you aimed for?' he asked. Miss McGregor nodded. "'I'm a fair shot, especially at this range. I put two bullets in his chest. They went straight through. You see the resulting damage on the wall.' Holmes rubbed his fingers over the bullet holes, nodded to himself, then went back to studying the room. Miss McGregor looked like she wanted to speak further, but I put a finger to my lips to hush her. Interrupting Holmes now would serve no purpose other than to irritate him. He spent ten minutes doing a slow survey of the room while I sat awkwardly on the edge of Miss McGregor's bed, smoking one of her cheroots. Nobody spoke until Holmes' circle of the chamber came to a stop at the foot of the bed. He looked down at his feet, and his eyes narrowed. "'Where did you get this?' he said. Miss McGregor was initially at a loss as to his meaning, until Holmes pointed at the floor. "'This rug,' he said. "'Where did it come from?' Uh, "'Tibet,' Miss McGregor said. "'A monk made me a present of it on my departure.' after I had stayed with him for several months while hunting plants in the foothills. Holmes made for the door. "'Bring the rug, Watson,' he said over his shoulder as he left the room. "'We have work to do.' He was gone, as quickly as he had come. "'Is he always like this?' Miss McGregor asked me as I stood. "'No,' I replied, deadpan. "'Sometimes he is rude.' The memory of her light laughter sustained me on the long trip back to Baker Street. I was glad of that memory, for it took my mind off the fact that the rug was bulky and rather heavy, and there was no sight of any carriage to save me the effort of carrying it for several miles. Holmes showed no desire either to help or to engage in conversation, walking ten yards ahead of me the whole way back to Baker Street. It was almost three o'clock in the morning by the time we arrived in the apartments. I was tired, grouchy, and ready for the comforts of bed. Holmes had other ideas. He spread the rug on the floor in front of the fire, sat in his favorite chair, 
and looked up at me as he lit a pipe. Tell me what you see, Watson. To argue tiredness was futile. Holmes did not live in prescribed chunks of time, and when he got his teeth into something it was best to go along with him, for he would only leave you behind when you failed to keep up. I looked down at the rug I'd carried for so many miles. The predominant color was red. The rug itself looked ordinary enough. Aside from the fact that the design was intricate, the needlework obviously done by a craftsman of some skill, the design was of a series of interconnected boxes, woven in such a way that all perspective was lost every time your eyes strayed to a different part of the whole. Yellow and gold threads seemed to mark some kind of path through a maze, but I could not in my tired and befuddled state make any rhyme or purpose from it. "'It's a rug, Holmes,' I said. "'I've seen a thousand like it in markets all over the Orient.' Mm, thousands, maybe,' Holmes said. "'But few quite like this one, I'll warrant.' He took a long puff from his pipe before continuing. "'What we have here is a mandala, and this one is quite a puzzle.' "'Mandala! Isn't that some fakir hocus-pocus?' Holmes shook his head. I came across several of these during my sojourn among the adepts, he said. It is mainly a method for focusing the will. All such designs have an end purpose, a goal to be attained through their study. The trick here will be to discern the purpose without any prior knowledge whatsoever. This may well be a three-pipe problem, Watson. And you think it pertinent to Miss McGregor's intruder problem? I could not see how that might be the case, but Holmes would not have had me cart the rug all this way for no other reason than it might provide him with mental exercise. Holmes nodded and gave me a tight smile. Well, solve one puzzle and we will unlock the key to the other. I'm sure of it. I'm only unsure as to how long the task might take me. Well, in that case, Holmes, I said, rising from the chair, it has been a long, tiring day, and I need some sleep. I left him to it. He was still in the same seat in the morning when I woke. He did not move from his seat when Mrs. Hudson brought up a breakfast tray. It's part of the discipline, he said. I cannot eat or drink until I have completed the puzzle. That is the most stupid kind of discipline imaginable, Holmes, I said. As a medical man, I cannot sanction such— I shut up. He had stopped listening to me and once more had targeted his concentration on the rug. He was still there by noon when I had to leave for a consultation. Mrs. Hudson was distraught when I returned in mid-afternoon. No breakfast, no lunch, he'll make himself ill again. I promised her that I would try to get Holmes to look after himself better, but I knew in my heart that was a lost cause before it began. All I could do was try to ameliorate any damage he might do and stop him if it looked like getting too serious. I went upstairs, fully intending to give him a harsh talking to. He was standing by the window, his favorite pipe lit, and a huge smile on his face. I have it, Watson, he said. I have the answer. He came over, led me by the arm to stand over the rug. It starts here, 
he said, pointing at the yellow and gold thread that ran through the design. It is a spiritual journey both inward and outward. The outer circle of fire symbolizes wisdom. The ring of eight charnel grounds represents the Buddhist exhortation to always be mindful of death, and the impermanence with which samsara is suffused is designated within this flaming rainbow mimbus, a black ring of dorges circles the palace of the body to emphasize the dangerous nature of human life, and in the palace itself lies the answer to, yes, the riddle. <laughs> well, I laughed. <laughs> My dear Holmes, I understood barely a single word of what you've just said, but this is good news for Miss McGregor or not. Holmes clapped me on the shoulder. It is indeed good news. You may bring Miss McGregor along this evening when we shall put an end to her intruder once and for all. I was more than happy to oblige Holmes' request for the presence of Miss McGregor, or Constance, as I was requested to call her during our carriage ride on my return journey to Baker Street. She professed some surprise that an old piece of carpeting could provide any kind of answer to her predicament, and I was unable to answer any questions, as I was as much in the dark myself. I found myself hoping for some interruption in traffic that might slow our progress and prolong my time alone with Constance, but it was not to be. We arrived back at 221B Baker Street just before nine in the evening. Mrs. Hudson was prepared for us, and we had a most enjoyable supper, finished off by some of her delectable scones. Holmes even managed to be polite to Constance, with no trace of his rudeness of the previous evening. Just after ten o'clock we settled by the fire with our smokes and a glass of brandy. I expected Holmes at that point to explain his thought process and provide an explanation for Constance's intruder. Once again, my old friend had other ideas. Watson, he said, would you please put out the lamps? Firelight will suffice for my purposes. I did as requested. As I returned to the fireside and sat down in my chair, Constance took my left hand in hers and squeezed it gently. It was all I could do to keep my attention on Holmes. He got out of his chair and sat down on the floor, cross-legged, beside the rug. "'What we have here,' he said, "'is a set of instructions, a path to follow, to complete a very specific task.' "'Which is?' Constance asked. I squeezed her hand and once again put a finger to my lips, but Holmes showed no sign of being annoyed by the interruption. "'I will come to that anon,' he said. "'But first, I, I must ask for some quiet. This part requires concentration on my part, if it's to be done correctly.' He placed a hand on each knee, palm upward, curled thumb and forefinger together on each, and started to chant— an extraordinary deep bass drone that echoed and reverberated around the room. Um, this went on for quite some time. Just as I was about to ask whether this was all some kind of an elaborate prank at our expense, Constance gripped my hand harder. The air between Holmes and ourselves and directly over the center of the rug coalesced and darkened, as if from out of nowhere a dark figure 
scarcely more than a shadow, started to take form. I heard Constance gasp, but could not spare the time to turn my head to look at her. The shadow was almost solid now, blocking out the light between ourselves and Holmes, who had started to chant even louder. The form of the thing in front of us was most definitely human, in that it had the requisite number of arms, legs, and heads, but there were no distinguishing features discernible. We stared into a block of blackness, as if looking down the shaft of a deep, dark well. The figure raised a hand, reaching out for Constance. Before I could move to help, Holmes shouted, his voice ringing authoritatively around us, Dumna urt! The black shape fell apart into a myriad of separate shadows that dropped toward the rug and were dispersed in the firelight. I may light the lamps, Holmes said in a matter-of-fact voice. Job is done. After I had turned on the lights again, Constance immediately took my hand. Holmes noticed, raised an eyebrow, and smiled, but said nothing. It was up to me to ask the obvious question. I know you're dying to tell us, old man, I said. So what just happened? Holmes got up and settled himself in his chair. He took his time lighting a fresh pipe, savoring his moment of triumph. I said it was a set of instructions, he said eventually, and that is exactly what it was. What you saw was the end product of following the path laid out in this design. I created, or rather, I recalled a tulpa, a, a thing of thought and will, given form outside the mind. That is not possible, Holmes, I said. And yet you saw it, Holmes said softly. I was about to argue further when Constance squeezed my hand again. I have heard of such things, she said, but I never thought to see one here in London. Holmes pointed at the rug. I suspect the previous owner was in the habit of studying the design most devoutly, he said so devoutly that in attempting to finish the task he left a psychic imprint behind in the material, a part of himself that was trapped inside his unfinished meditations. And you brought it to completion, Constance said softly, nodding as if she understood. Exactly, Holmes replied. My own intensive training allowed me to successfully pierce the veil bring the tulpa completely to mind, and just as successfully banish it. You will be troubled no more, Miss McGregor. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Not long after Holmes' exhibition, Constance decided she would like to return home. I managed to get a carriage willing to make the journey and offer to accompany her, but she pleaded for some time alone. You see, John, I can call you John, can't I? I knew the man who owned that rug. I knew him quite well. I even watched him die. And to see that, that shadow fall apart like that tonight, it feels like I have watched him die all over again. I need some time to think. As she got into the carriage, she turned back to me and gave me a peck on the cheek. "'We will meet again soon,' she said. "'Perhaps I can persuade you on coming on a plant-hunting trip with me.' I do believe I was smiling broadly as the carriage drove away, and I went back into the apartment. My goodwill lasted only as long as it took me to climb the stairs. Holmes had rolled up the rug and placed it beside the fireplace. That small act seemed to have tired him out completely. He had gone pale, almost white, his eyes sunk back in deep grey hollows. I did not wish your new lady friend to see what it has taken out of me, he said, his voice little more than a whisper as I helped him to his chair. Brandy, please, Watson, make it a large one. I had one for myself at the same time. The liquor seemed to have the desired effect, and after five minutes he had some colour back to his cheeks, although his eyes betrayed a deeper tiredness that would take him longer to shake. "'Explain it to me again, Holmes, please,' I said. "'This business about the tulpa, and remember I am only a simple medical practitioner.' Holmes smiled, but it was a little thing, and I could see that he was drained. Uh, forget it for now, I replied. You need to rest. He waved a hand to keep me in my chair. No, let us have a smoke and another brandy first, and I'll see if I can make sense of it for you. I poured us a fresh drink. He lit up a cheroot and thought for a while before continuing. As I said, a tulpa is a thought form, a manifestation of will, whether it has any real existence outside of the minds of those perceiving it is a matter of some debate, but I personally believe it is a function of sentience, that it spreads, and that spread is what we perceive tonight. Sorry, Holmes, I just can't bring myself to believe it. Holmes laughed softly. <laughs> I, I saw a great many things in the Orient I couldn't quite bring myself to believe, my good doctor. "'as I suspect you did yourself. "'Why don't you just content yourself with this fact? "'Your new lady friend is now safe from nocturnal visitors. "'And 
The rug is now just a rug. No more, no less. No more was said on the matter. In the morning, Holmes was almost back to his old self, although, to my doctor's eyes, he still seemed rather wan and tired. Over the course of the coming week, I found myself spending more and more time with the delightful Constance, and when she asked if I was free for a weekend trip to Scotland, I was only too happy to oblige her. Holmes seemed listless and bored. But he was often in that mood between cases, and it was better than suffering another of his periodic bouts of hyperactivity. At least this way Mrs. Hudson might survive my absence in relative peace and quiet. After that I had no further thought of Holmes for the whole weekend, which passed all too quickly, but left me feeling even closer to Constance, and starting to hope that this might be at least the beginning of a lasting relationship. What with that and the finding of a new species of orchid previously unknown in Britain, I had much material for a chat with Holmes over a pipe and a drink by the fire. I arrived back in Baker Street at dusk on Monday evening. Mrs. Hudson informed me that all had been quiet for most of the weekend, but that Holmes had taken to playing the most raucous racket on his violin. It had got on Mrs. Hudson's nerves to the point that she had spent much of the preceding weekend visiting friends. I went up the stairs wondering what kind of mood I would find my friend harboring. The room was in darkness. I could just make out a silhouetted figure sitting by the fire smoking a pipe. I say, old chap, let's throw some light on the matter, shall we? I lit a lamp and turned back to the fire just in time to see the dark shape that sat in Holmes' chair rise and slink off into the far corner of the room and lose itself among the deeper shadows. I found Holmes in his bed, running a fever and lost in delirium. At first I almost suspected that Holmes had relapsed and resorted to narcotics to ease his mood but it quickly became obvious that my friend was gravely ill. His heart raced in a most uncontrolled manner, his eyes fluttered, pupils rolling up in the sockets. When I touched his brow, my hand came away, sodden with fresh sweat. I ministered to him as well as I could, having to give him a sedative to ensure that he might at least get some rest, a period of respite from whatever had gripped him. It did indeed seem to calm him after a while. Just as I thought he might be falling into a welcome bout of sleep, he grabbed my hand and spoke a harsh, dry whisper. She knows more than she has said. Get the woman, and get the flower. At any other time I might have queried that, but Holmes had already fallen back on the bed, and when I checked he seemed to be fast asleep. It did not take a genius to work out which woman he had meant. As I started to back out of the room, I heard a familiar sound from the sitting-room, the scrape of a bow on violin strings. What wasn't familiar was the music that followed. The last time I had heard anything like it had been in the sprawling markets in Islamabad, and I never expected to hear it here in the heart of London. 
It was a dance of sorts, a frantic exhortation to spin and whirl, and it came from what I knew to be an empty room. As I walked through the doorway, the music stopped abruptly. I was just in time to see a tall, black shadow melt into the darkness in the corner. Constance did not seem at all surprised to see me when I turned up on her doorstep an hour later, nor did she show any sign of confusion when I mentioned Holmes' statement about a flower. Come with me, was all she said. She led me through to a small atrium at the back of the dwelling, a glass house containing a wide variety of shrub and exotic flowers. We must take the Marafesa flower, she said, snipping a large white bloom from a tall leafy plant, and you will need to hear my story. Once you've heard it, you will have a decision to make regarding your friend, Mr. Holmes. A decision, I hope, turns out better for you than it did for me. That cryptic remark was all she would say until we were in a carriage making our way back to Baker Street. She took my hand and looked into my eyes. I fear you may think somewhat less of me after this tale is told, she said, and launched into her story before I had time to protest. You already know of my travels in Tibet, she began, but what I haven't told you, what I have not told anyone, is what happened in the monastery in Lhasa. I lit two cheroots and passed one to her. She took it gratefully and had a deep pull on it before continuing. I was there for several months and became great friends with my guide, a monk called Yen San. We travelled all over the foothills and the highest mountains together, and indeed it was he who found the flower we have brought with us, and he who was the original owner of the prayer rug. He always insisted that the rug held a great secret, and when we were not out on the hills hunting for plants, he spent many of his waking hours in meditation sitting in front of it. One would struggle to find a more peaceful, relaxed man anywhere. That all changed the day we found the Marafesa. I was aware that the hills we were in were the stuff of legend, of a plant that only flowered in moonlight, one that bestowed supernatural powers on anyone who found it, and partook of the vapors exuded when the petals were rolled and smoked. Of course, I had heard many legends on my travels, and had never found any with even half a grain of truth. And that was all about to change. We had spent the best part of a day inching up a long gully and had decided to bivouac at the highest point before descending in the morning. I was putting up the tent when Yensan let out a cry. At first I thought he was in trouble, but it was excitement that had led him to shout out. He had found a specimen of the legendary Marafesa. It was in flower, and had seeds we could collect. I was happy just to have found a new species I could bring back to Kew, but for Yensan the find was to change his life, at least for the short period he had left of it. She stopped, tears running down her cheek. I squeezed her hand gently, and she responded in kind. 
You do not have to continue, I said softly. Not if it pains you so much. She took another long draw from the cheroot and shook her head. As I said, this is something you need to hear. Holmes' life may depend on it. She let go of my hand, wiped her tears away, then continued with her story. We returned to Lhasa with our find, and Yansan immediately took it on himself to test the legend. I came across him just as he lit some of the rolled-up leaves of the flowers and took a long draw of smoke deep into his lungs. Sit with me, he said, and took up a cross-legged position in front of the prayer rug. He offered me a chance to smoke, but I declined, for already I could see that he had trouble focusing his vision, and the color was up in his cheeks. He was under the influence of a powerful narcotic. Over the next hour the drug took firm hold of him, so much so that I started to fear for his life. I tugged at his arm. He fought up out of his delirium just long enough to berate me. I am close, he whispered. Whatever happens, do not disturb me again, I beg of you. So I sat there with him as the drug gripped him ever tighter. Any conscious will he had remaining was focused on the prayer rug. The end came some two hours later. He gave out a small sigh and started to topple sideways. I moved to help him and got him upright was too late. My friend was dead. Constance fell quiet, fresh tears rolling down her face. It seems the tale was told. I sat there, holding her hand, trying to understand what relevance this story had to Holmes' predicament. Don't you see, John, she said, Holmes wants to take the drug. He believes it will focus his mind, allow him to fight against the hold this tulpa, or whatever it is that has come out of the rug, has taken of him. But if he does so, it could just as easily kill him. From what you've told me, he is in no state to make a decision. You must decide what is best for him. I was no closer to making up my mind either way by the time we reached 221B Baker Street. Mrs. Hudson was nowhere in evidence, and there was no sound from above as we took off our coats in the hallway. Constance handed me the delicate white flower she had removed from the plant in her glass house. I do not recommend its use, she said, but it is not my choice to make. Holmes has something of a tolerance for narcotics, I said dryly, but I hope it does not come to that. It may be that a period of rest will have revived him. As we reached the top of the stairs, the music started again. The same crazed dance I had heard before. Constance went pale and grabbed my hand. I know that tune, she whispered. I opened the door with some trepidation as to what we might find. A dark shadow sat in the chair by the fire. It rose as the door opened, and Constance let out a shriek. It's him! It's him! She let go of my hand and fled off and down the stairs, out of the front door. Before I could stop her, I had half a mind to follow her, and may even have done so had Holmes not chosen that moment to call out my name. The dark shadow once again faded into the corner as I entered the room, and the music came to an abrupt halt. "'Watson!' Holmes shouted again. 
When I went through to his room, I found him trying to get out of bed. I tried to get him to lie down, but he would have none of it. Did you get it? He asked. Did you get the flower? I debated for a second, refusing him, but I had come this far with him. I had to trust him now. I handed him the flower. He managed a smile. And the lady? Gone, I'm afraid. Too many memories. Holmes nodded as if he understood. He staggered when he tried to stand, and I had to lend him a shoulder for balance as we went through to the main room. As we entered, a tall shadow separated from the corner and moved to sit in the armchair by the fireside. "'It's getting too strong,' Holmes whispered. "'I must get it right this time. I must banish it tonight, or I fear it will be the end of me.' I helped him to the ground where he sat cross-legged in front of the prayer rug. I glanced at the shadowy figure in the chair. It may have been only my imagination, but it seemed to be taking on solidity, even as I watched, the blackness becoming deeper, pulsing in time with Holmes' own breathing. I saw that he was struggling with the petals of the flower, his fingers trembling too much to allow him to roll the leaves. I took them from him and with an action long familiar from rolling my own cigarettes in the service, twisted the petals firmly into the semblance of a smoke. I passed it back to Holmes, and lit it for him with a taper from the fireside. "'Stay with me, Watson,' he said, as he sucked the first of several puffs deep into his lungs. "'This could be a long night.' I was already worrying that I had made the wrong decision. I could only hope that Holmes knew his own capabilities and that his tolerance for narcotics would help him withstand the effects of the drug enough to finish the task. Although I had acted as a friend might, I felt I had failed him as a doctor, and it weighed heavy on my heart. It started quietly enough. Holmes started to chant the same bass drone he had used the last time. Um, and with each successive drone, the black shadow in the chair grew firmer, more substantial. Holmes swayed, almost fell, and I had to hold him up. This is nonsense, Holmes, I said. You're going to kill yourself. Better that than the alternative, he whispered, and pushed me away, and he went back to chanting. Softly at first, then... Ever faster and louder, the violin music started up, coming from everywhere and nowhere, spinning and echoing round the room, threatening to drown out Holmes' chant. Help me, Holmes shouted. Chant! Chant for my life! Feeling slightly foolish, I joined Holmes in chanting, feeling the bass drone hum and vibrate in my stomach. Louder! Holmes shouted, and I obliged. The blackness in the air swelled and thickened, Holmes' eyes rolled up in their sockets, and he almost tumbled to one side, but he righted himself, and with one last effort summoned up a shout that drove every other sound from the room. Do not! Silence fell. The black shadow seemed to flow and shrink, falling into the pattern of the prayer rug, until we were left alone again in the light from the fire. Burn the rug, Holmes whispered. Burn it now. 
It took some doing, but with the aid of the heavy poker and a pair of tongs I was able to hold the material in position until the flames took hold of it. At the last a black shadow threatened to rise from the smoking remains, but the fire took it and scattered it into scraps that flew away out of sight up the chimney. Holmes and I stayed there, watching, until there was nothing left but ash. That was William Meikle's Case of the Tibetan Rug, as read by none other than our founding host, Lawrence Santoro. If you'd like to hear more about this episode, or listen back to the full thing, link is in the show notes. And until next time, children of the night, stay safe and stay scared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.